Well, God is good, and all the time, God is good. Well, good morning. It is the Sunday after Christmas and in our one huge service, and as much as April and I and our whole family would love to be with you, uh, maybe you're not aware, but we did test over the weekend positive for COVID. Uh, all of us are feeling well, and we are asymptomatic other than uh, one of our people can't smell or taste, and so that's what led us to test, and so therefore uh, we're not physically with you because we love you and we want to do uh, what is right. Uh, but I'm so happy to be here uh, through video and thank God for our great tech team and all that they do. And as a matter of fact, after the service today, you should tell them how much you appreciate them. Well, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 61. Uh, we're also going to be looking in Luke chapter 4, and so these verses will be on the screen as well. Uh, we'll start in Isaiah 61, and then we'll go to Luke chapter 4. Uh, Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planning of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And then Luke chapter 4 verses 16 through 21. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And Jesus began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your word endures forever. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how many of you are looking forward to making the most out of next year? You know, we've just survived Christmas, and New Year's is always that time of hope and promise that 2022 is going to be one of the best years of our lives. And you know what? I don't know about you, but I think we deserve a couple of mulligans for 2020 and 2021. I know that the ending of 2021 wasn't what I planned. You know, so many of us make New Year's resolutions. Uh, these resolutions are pledges or promises to lose weight and feel great, to save money, uh, to get out of debt, to start exercising more, to read through the Bible, which we want to encourage you to do. We're providing a plan for you to read through the Bible this year, and that's found in our first word and through our social media. Uh, or maybe uh, you want to reduce your social media consumption. Uh, whatever your resolutions are, uh, there was a study that was done by the University of Scranton in Pennsylvania, and they did a study that found that only 8% of people who made resolutions on January 1 were able to keep them throughout the entire year. As a matter of this study, uh, they said that 79% 
of people who made resolutions on January the 1st broke them by January the 17th. Only 17 days and they are broken. Well, why are resolutions so difficult to keep? And the reason why is because we don't have the power to change ourselves. Uh, life, uh, life change does on, only comes from heart change. And heart change only comes from God. Well, the good news of Christmas is that everything we ever hoped for and everything that we've ever longed for is found in reality in Jesus. Only Jesus can give you a happy new year. Well, as we've been going this uh, Christmas season through the book of Isaiah, Isaiah here is writing 700 years prior to Christmas. And God made some incredible promises to his people. And each of the prophecies that we've walked through have pointed us to a Messiah who would be a child that is born and a son that is given. A king who would reign forever and a savior who would deliver us from our greatest fears. And so the prophecy of Isaiah 61 is to be fulfilled in Jesus who will come and bring true and lasting freedom. Who will bring a year of jubilee, a season of jubilee, a lifetime, an eternity of jubilee for God's people. And what I want you to see, and here's what we're going to learn in the passage is this, is that Jesus is the spirit-empowered Messiah who came on a status-reversing mission to usher in the year of jubilee for God's people forever. So let's just walk through there. Number one, the spirit-empowered Messiah. Now, we're looking primarily in Luke's gospel, and in Luke 14, verse 6, the Bible tells us that Jesus has come to Nazareth. He's been doing miracles all throughout the area of Capernaum, all in Canaan of Galilee. And so here, Isaiah, when he's looking in Isaiah 61, is seeing a Messiah who will come and dwell among his people as Emmanuel, as God with us. And Jesus would take upon himself a lowly, unassuming, humble disposition. And Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, as we know from the Scripture, and then he'll grow up in this town the town of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was a small village. Uh, it was not known for anything uh, or anyone really good. All of Jesus's extended family lived there. And so here, when Jesus comes back to Nazareth, it's a family reunion. It's a hometown reunion. And so when Jesus gets into town, and, and it wasn't a very big town, uh, not the size of Nazareth today, Jesus went to the synagogue. And this was, the Bible says, was Jesus' custom. Jesus, everywhere he went on Shabbat, on Saturday, uh, he went to church. He went to be with God's people. Uh, this synagogue worship actually came out of the Babylonian captivity. And so uh, because the people of God were exiled, they wanted to gather. And so the service would consist of the following. It would have prayers. It would have blessings. Uh, it would have the reading from Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. And then there would be a reading from the law uh, and then the prophets. And so the visiting rabbi would come in uh, and he would come and expound on the text. Now, let me just go back to something. It was Jesus' custom to go to church. You know, we live in a, a day where a lot of people who call themselves Christians don't feel like that they need to attend a local church. You know, people don't like the institutional church. But if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, went to synagogue every Sabbath, don't you think that a Christian should go to church every weekend? You know, how many of you, how many of us 
are going to think, you know what, if Jesus did something customarily, how are we going to avoid what Jesus did customarily? You know, the synagogue in Jesus's day was in far worse shape than the churches are today and still yet Jesus attended. And so Jesus here, that wasn't meant to be a guilt trip because I don't listen. The Sunday after Christmas, you all are like the Green Beret. So thanks for coming. But listen, Jesus goes to the synagogue and then the Bible says that he read the scroll. Jesus here as the hometown hero is given the honor of being the visiting rabbi who would stand uh, and read the scroll and then give the homily, give the message. And so Jesus at this moment was at the very height of his popularity. Uh, he had just performed many miracles in the region, uh, turning water into wine. He's been teaching uh, some great things. And most of the places where Jesus went, they asked him to speak. And so here in the town of Nazareth, everyone wanted to hear him. And so verse 17, Jesus is handed the Isaiah scroll. And Jesus specifically chose the passage of Isaiah 61. He found that place. And see, here's where it's kind of different. Often in, in Jesus' day, in the synagogue worship, even to this day, the, the, the scriptures would be programmed. They would be, they would be fixed. And so each synagogue would actually read the Torah every three years. And so here they kind of left it to Jesus to choose the passage. That's what a lot of scholars believe. And so Jesus here... It was no accident that he chose Isaiah 61. Jesus wasn't playing Russian roulette with the Bible. He was very intentional here. And so he says, uh, he, he reads here Isaiah 61, and in verse 18 here he begins where he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now Jesus lived the spirit-empowered life. In chapter 3 of verse 22 of Luke's gospel, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, where the Holy Spirit then descended upon him like a dove. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 1, after his baptism, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit led him out into the wilderness of temptation to be tempted by the devil. And he'll actually overcome that temptation by the power of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus is going to be led into uh, the, the region of the Galilee's by the Holy Spirit. So here's the question that maybe you're asking. Why did the Spirit come down and rest on him? Did Jesus need the Holy Spirit? Listen, Jesus is and was God in every way. His deity was not diminished by his humanity. He needed nothing, okay? But yet in his humanity, he was anointed for service. And so Jesus would be given the greatest anointing of the Spirit in the history of humanity. Isaiah speaks about this previous in Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth justice to the nations. As we read uh, earlier this December in Isaiah 11, verse 2, the Bible says that the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Later on in the New Testament, the apostle Peter speaking to Cornelius, uh, that uh, Roman um, centurion said this, that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. See, Jesus was the anointed one. As I said a, a few uh, weeks ago, that uh, growing up as a kid, I used to think that Jesus' last name was Christ. Well, well Christ isn't his last name. The word Christ, Christos, uh, is uh, really we get our, our thoughts of Messiah. So the word Messiah more Hebraic, and Christ, Christos, which is more Greek, 
means anointed one, Hamashiach in the Hebrew. And so Jesus is the anointed one. And so what is this anointing all about? Now, you may say, all right, what are you getting into? Well, just follow with me here. Uh, the anointing here is a symbol of God's blessing. It's a symbol of God's power and position and, and, and position uh, given to a special task or assignment. And so the sign of an anointing is for in the Old Testament was often symbolized through oil. And so prophets, priests, and kings were anointed with oil. In the Old Testament, there were four groups that were anointed with the Holy Spirit for service. We, I know that maybe some of you might think, this is boring. Well, well, get to the point. There's a point here. Those that were anointed by, the, by oil uh, and by the Holy Spirit were the artisans, uh, those who were skilled in constructing the, the temple, the tabernacle, the judges, those who were empowered uh, to deliver God's people and govern them, the kings, those who were empowered to rule God's people, and the prophets, those who were empowered to proclaim God's word to the people. But even as those in the Old Testament were empowered and anointed by the Holy Spirit of God, all believers, if you're a Christian in this room or you're watching online, all are anointed with the Holy Spirit. All believers are indwelt and filled with the Holy Spirit to fulfill the mission that God has given to us. And as a matter of fact, Jesus says, greater works will you do than me. And the same Spirit that empowered Jesus empowers you and I today to do the works of Jesus in a broken world. So we don't have any excuse. And so Jesus is saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then verse 20, he rolls up the scroll and he sat down. Rabbis taught sitting down. And now he's going to expound on what he just read. And the, pers the portion that they heard him speak was something that they loved to hear. It was the long-expected new age of salvation and deliverance. And so when Jesus reads Isaiah 61, this was Old Testament prophecy. And all eyes, the Bible says, were glued on him. People loved to hear about prophecy. They wanted to hear what Jesus would say about these verses, about the Messiah. They wanted to know about heaven, hell, and the end of the world. They were waiting with bated breath. What is he going to say? What is he going to say about these verses of scriptures? Will, will we, what, what are we going to do with this? And so Jesus sits down, reads this very familiar, very exciting prophecy from Isaiah. And everyone is looking at him, just like right now. You're looking at me. And then he says in verse 21, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus announced to the world that the hoped-for king, the son of David, the liberator, savior, world ruler, justice, peace-giving Messiah has come. And it was him. Jesus came to his hometown in front of his family and his friends and told them he was the long-awaited Messiah. And he came as the Spirit-empowered Messiah to do what? When he said that, all the prophecy of Isaiah was now in their mind that Jesus is saying he came to do this. That is, Jesus came as a on a status-reversing mission. 
So verses 18 and 19 that we read earlier are the summary verses of Isaiah 61, one through three. And so Jesus read, and this is a summary of his ministry. Jesus came as our Messiah, and in this, there's a sevenfold spirit-empowered ministry to help people who are in trouble. And these verses not only talk about Jesus's earthly ministry, but are even, I think, an outline for the very gospel of Luke. Jesus says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news. Not good advice, but good news. To who? To the poor. Who are the poor? To the poor financially. Yes. Jesus came to give the good news to those who are literally poor living in squalor. But even more so to those who are poor in spirit. Jesus came to preach good news to people that are spiritually poor people, people who are dependent and needy on God. Tim Keller says that the, the gospel is news about what God has already done for you rather than instruction and advice about what you should do for God. In other religions, God reveals to us how we can find or achieve salvation. The gospel on the other hand, is that God achieves salvation for us. The gospel brings news primarily rather than instruction. And so Jesus says, I have come to proclaim to you good news, news of what I am coming to do. And for us, the gospel is news of what God has already done for us. See, if you think you're too far gone, think again. If you think that you're too broken and fear that your life is over, think again. If you are crushed by the weight of this world, there is hope. He says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news. That there is a year of the Lord's favor. Now, the interesting part about that phrase in verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, is that echoes back to something in the Old Testament, and that is the year of Jubilee. See, in Leviticus 25, God established an institution called the year of Jubilee so that every 50th year, Israel was able to take the whole year off. They would then cancel all the debts and return. So if you had any debt, like you get all the debt in year 49, year 50, it's all gone. Think about that. They were to then return all the family property that was sold to the original owner so that you would, if you had to sell your land to survive, well, you got your land back for free. And then everyone was to be kind and generous. And so the, the purpose, what God says, is that this was to proclaim liberty throughout the land. And so everyone was to shout. And, and this year of Jubilee was a foreshadowing of the liberation of Christ that he's proclaiming now in the, in, in the city of Nazareth. Now, I think that if I'm not mistaken, they never did it. <laughs> Israel never did the year of Jubilee. And I, you would probably see why not. But what you see here is that this, this, this institution that God wanted them to do, they, they, they struggled to do if they ever did it at all. But what you see here is that Jesus here is, is summarizing his ministry. Here in, in verses 18 through 19, you, you see that his, his ministry, of, the, of the, the summary of these verses are threefold, is that Jesus came to proclaim liberty to those that were captive, not just physically captive, but spiritually ca captive to sin, Satan, and the fear of death. So those of you that are in the bondage of addiction, bad decisions, guilt, and shame, Jesus has come to proclaim liberty to you. To recover sight to the blind, not just physically blind, although he does 
provide sight to the blind, but spiritually blind, those to whom the God of this world has blinded, those who are stuck in darkness and depravity, those who have no insight. Here is good news. And to free those who are oppressed, those who are oppressed by sickness, depressed by sadness, repressed by false religion, Jesus came to set you free from the shackles of the sin of your past, and he's come to set you free from the worry you have of your future. See, ancient Israel was, and even now is today, a shame-honor culture. And so in, these, in this passage, you, you see both shame and honor. You see pictures of shame, the poor, prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed. And then you see pictures of honor, good news, freedom, recovery, release. See, the first century in Jesus' day was a very stratified uh, society where most of the honor and most of the shame that you had in life was inherited. It was ascribed to you. You were born into it. So if you were born into a certain class of people, that's who you were going to be. You may try to gain more honor or you may do some things that would bring more shame on you, but you're pretty much stuck in the same class uh, that, that you were. And, and it's, I don't know if you've ever been to India, uh, but India has this caste system. And so there's this group of people, this caste called the untouchables, about 16% of the Indian population. And so I'm born this way, and I have to live this way, and I can't ever get out of this. I'm born in shame. I'm born in dishonor. You know, we have a group of young people that are struggling with shame and, 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 and feel, feelings of anxiety, feeling that they'll never live up to it, to, them, to anything. In the New York Magazine, uh, an article was written by Heather Haverlasky. And she writes about the anxiety that many young people feel. And here's what she writes. She says, an external mob is watching and judging and withholding approval. It's impossible to matter, to be interesting enough. Many young people describe others as a better version of me. This is how it feels today to be young and fully invested in our new popularity contest. No matter how hard you try, someone else out there is taking the same raw ingredients and making a better life out of them. And the curated version of you that lives online also feels hopelessly polished and inaccurate and you feel somehow that you are alone, that you alone are the inauthentic one. In other words, she says, everyone else is better than you, you're nothing. And that's the anxiety that people are feeling today. Now, when she gives solutions, she doesn't really give any solutions. See, Jesus came to give ultimate solutions. To those of you who feel stuck, that you feel like you'll never matter, that you'll never amount to anything, that you're always going to be who you are, well, Jesus has come to change your life forever. See, Jesus has come to bring new life and new purpose. And, and we see this all throughout the book of Luke. Remember, I told you this serves as an outline. And so you see that Jesus comes to take those that are dirty and make them clean. In Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, Jesus cleanses a leper. A man that was born with a very rare skin disease that was an outcast in society, unable to live at home, unable to, to be around people. It's, he had to quarantine all of his life, away from his family, away from his friends, away from his home. He couldn't work. He couldn't go to church. This man in Luke chapter 5 felt filthy, felt repressed, was repugnant, had to go around and anytime he ever engaged anybody had to say, unclean, unclean. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. And what does Jesus do? Jesus cleanses him. How does Jesus cleanse him? Here's the interesting thing. By touching him. Instead of turning away from him, Jesus turns to him. 
You know, imagine the shock of that guy having Jesus touch him. And as soon as Jesus touched him, he went from helpless to healed. You see, not only those who are dirty or clean, but those who are rejected or accepted. In Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, there's a woman who is standing outside watching Jesus eat at a Pharisee's house, the religious of the religious. She was a prostitute. She was a woman of the night and a woman of the city. But yet she bursts into the house. She pours ointment on Jesus' feet and washes his feet with her tears. How does Jesus respond? Simon the Pharisee thought that if Jesus was a good rabbi and if Jesus was a good prophet, he wouldn't allow her to touch him like that. Surely Jesus would rebuke her. Yet if you read the other gospels, Jesus allows her. If you read the other gospels, you'll see that this event happens right after Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, Jesus knew this woman was hurting. And so she came to Jesus, hurting and heartbroken with a soiled reputation. And she pours herself out to Jesus. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. I receive you. No one thinks that this woman should be allowed at that table but Jesus. See, this woman didn't get herself right to come to Jesus She came to Jesus as she was, and Jesus forgave her just as she was. You'll see in Luke's gospel, those that went from blind to seeing. In Luke chapter 18, there was a man by the name of Bartimaeus, and he was a broke beggar, and he heard that Jesus was coming right near him, and he called out in faith, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. And the irony is, is that Jesus just left Jerusalem with people who could physically see but were spiritually blind. Bartimaeus was physically blind but could spiritually see. And Jesus brought light into the middle of his darkness. Then lastly, you'll see that Jesus takes those that are lost and he finds them. In Luke chapter 19, while Jesus was in Jericho, there was a wee little man who was a notorious sinner in a low life. He was a blood-sucking tax collector. And he wanted to see Jesus. He climbs up, remember in that little sycamore tree for the Lord he wants to see? Jesus saw him, and Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to your house, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And what you see is this, Jesus came as a Spirit-empowered Messiah to bring about a status-reversing mission. See, Jesus came to reverse our curse. And he reversed our curse by taking upon himself our curse. Jesus is the only Savior. No one can save us but Jesus. Let me end with this. If you read Isaiah 61, and what Jesus says in Luke chapter 4, you'll notice that Jesus stops mid-sentence. In Isaiah 61 verse 2, The prophet Isaiah says that that the Spirit of the Lord is upon our Messiah to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and then notice the day of vengeance of our God. Why is it that Jesus leaves out the day of vengeance? You know, for the Jews hearing this, they were longing for that day of military vengeance where Rome would be overthrown. They were wanting justice for all the injustice that they have endured. But the truth is, the day of vengeance is the day of condemnation to all those who do not trust in God's Messiah. 
See, Isaiah's perspective saw both the year of the Lord's favor and the day of God's vengeance as one event, and yet we know that they are two separate events. Jesus' first coming is the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus' second coming is the day of vengeance. Right now, we are living in the year of the Lord's favor. And that's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. We live in a day of great grace and a day of great patience. God is withholding justice and offering full amnesty to whoever believes. But when the year of Jubilee, when the year of God's favor is over, there will be a day of vengeance on all who do not believe. And the door of God's grace will be shut forever. See, Jesus does not mention the day of vengeance in Luke 4 because it was a day of grace. See, Jesus brings salvation today to save the poor, to save the slave, to save the blind, to save the oppressed from the day of God's wrath. And the gap of time between the day of grace and the day of vengeance is closing in. And we have no idea how much longer we have. So that is why we continue to preach with fervor the year of the Lord's favor. So some of you are saying, all right, pastor, this is great. What do we do with this? I want to end with this thought. If you are a believer, we are called, you are called to continue the mission of Jesus. Just as Jesus was spirit empowered, so you and I are holy in spirit, Holy Spirit empowered to complete the work of Jesus. And if you follow Luke's gospel, it will take you to the book of Acts. And there the book of Acts is just a continuation of what Jesus began to do and to teach, worked out through the apostles all the way to us today. And you, my friends, this year, you need to commit yourself to preach the gospel, to love the poor, to care for the captives, to give light to those that are in darkness and proclaim freedom to those who are impressed. We cannot afford to live in holy huddles on our little lily pads until we go to glory. We are called to continue the spirit-empowered ministry of Jesus. No excuses. But if you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, understand that the day of God's grace is available now but it's not available forever. Today is the day of salvation. There is coming a day of vengeance. You know, I heard this statement a long time ago. You've probably heard it as well. That the opportunity of a lifetime is only as good as the lifetime of that opportunity. You know, my daddy and mom lived, grew up in a town in Kentucky called Somerset. We actually have a few of our folks from up north who are from the City of Somerset, little town of Somerset, little hamlet. And they used to tell me of a, of a guy that was a used car salesman there in Somerset. His name, believe it or not, was Shorty Smalls. And he wasn't a very tall man either. And he was a used car salesman, and here's what his shtick was. He would take you to look at different cars, and he would find a car that he felt that you would like, and he would knock on that car and he would look at you and he would say do you hear that he'd say that's opportunity knocking but it won't last long in other words buy the car now well listen do you hear that knocking that's opportunity knocking 
For First Baptist Church of Naples, the fields are wide in the harvest. There's an opportunity for us to go out and reach Naples to the nations for Jesus Christ. We are in the year of the Lord's favor. We have been set free. We have been given sight. We are called to boldly go where Jesus has called us to go. But if you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, that opportunity is a short window. Trust Him as your Savior. Would you bow with me? Father in heaven, I pray that you would take this message and do a work with it that only you could do. Father, I pray that you would empower us and embolden us with your spirit to go out as your people and proclaim the year of God's favor. That those who are in bondage don't have to be in bondage anymore. Those who are in addiction or the slavery of addiction can be set free. Those that are blind can be given sight. Father, those that are oppressed can find their hope in you. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone in this room or watching online that doesn't know you as Savior, that today would be the day of their salvation. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.